What I want to talk to you today about today is the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church, the hierarchy of many of the church organizations in the world today, in the light of the book of Hebrews written by the Apostle Paul, and I very much lean in favor of his authorship of the book. If you want to have a contrary opinion, you're quite welcome to that. The scholars have argued over it for centuries and have never come to a complete conclusion as to who is the author of the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews is written to the people that are addressed on the title, who are basically the Jews in and near Palestine at about the time of 61 to 68, and some people think all the way up to 85. There are a lot of arguments about when it was written, but no earlier than 61 and probably from 65 to 69 A.D., while the temple yet stood and just barely before its destruction. Now, to go back and to put ourselves in the picture of the kind of people with whom the Apostle Paul was dealing at that time would be just about like you living in the nation of France or any of the Central or South American countries where the Roman Catholic Church is 100% or 98% of all of the population, where the word church means automatically the Roman Catholic Church, where there are no other churches basically allowed, and if there are, as in some cases, there's a great deal of persecution, even in the nation of Mexico today, Many Protestants have great difficulties there. Here is a group of people to whom Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the Old Testament prophets, the so-called fathers or the patriarchs of old, and especially the Levitical priesthood and the temple are the visible manifestations of religion and the only way to become in God's good graces is to go to a temple to carry into that temple or to buy when you get there with money, doves, certain measures of grain, to buy a young bullock or a ram, to go before a priest, to have a sacrificial offering made on your behalf, and to see the blood literally poured into a basin, to have the priest go through a lot of rituals such as perhaps waving the hawk or the ham of the animal to actually see the pyres of smoke flowing up where the place that a burnt offering was made regularly every day, every Sabbath, on the annual holy days, and to see on the Day of Atonement a very elaborate ritual involving the sacrifice of certain animals, even for Aaron, who went into the Holy of Holies, coming out with a basin of blood, as ugly as that might be, actually the priests passing out the blood, and all of them with basins going about and literally sprinkling blood over the congregation, so as you sat there, inevitably a few drops of blood are going to hit you on the head or on your vestments, on the garments that you are wearing, and when it's all over, you felt expiated. It was a very satisfying sort of a procedure to go through to actually see the death of an animal to, be, to have impressed upon you once again that sin requires the shedding of blood, and if it weren't that animal up there, it would be you to see actual blood being sprinkled all about on the congregation and upon yourself, and then to realize that the priest goes through all the ritual, that you are in some way having an atonement made for yourself, and you go away from that service on the Day of Atonement or any one of the annual holy days, or if you were to witness the daily burnt offerings, feeling expiated, feeling forgiven, feeling like you're allowed back into the camp of Israel. Today, in many church organizations, there are papal figures, first of all, in the Roman Catholic Church, and in many other church organizations where they believe in an hierarchical structure of an autocracy, 
where the only way you as a local lay member can gain favor in the congregation, if you are guilty of some sin, some slight, some real or imagined slight of the minister and of his great office, or of the church as a whole, or of God, because of some doctrinal disagreement, some bad attitude on your part, some uh, appetite in which you've indulged, such as smoking or something else that might have come along and been a problem for you. And the only way you can get back in the good graces is to go to that man, sit down with him, confess all of your difficulties, and have him grant you approval to return. Now, if you were a Roman Catholic and you were guilty of certain sins, the only way to get those sins expiated is to go to a father confessor, a priest. And the priest sits in a booth. Now, that booth is quite dark and there are slats. that are. You, it's impossible to get anything but maybe a little note uh, through those slats. You cannot reach a hand through them. And if you want to read Hafele's church councils about it literally took hundreds of years for the gradual development of the Catholic church confessional booth you will now understand why the church has little slats where the priest cannot reach out to touch the individual doing the repenting. Because, you see, in the first few centuries, apparently there, there was, well, you poor dear, and then it went, well, you poor dear, and then you can let your imagination go from there. And apparently the Pope got word of all this if he wasn't participating in it. And it's quite interesting to discover why the confessional developed in the way it is so that it's hands-off. You can't really see each other. There's a sort of a shadowy figure in there, and I have sinned. Oh, what did you do? Well, then you go through what you did. All right, that's so many Hail Marys and Our Fathers and so many laps around the rosary, and you go without a certain number of things, or you, you give a certain offering to the church, but there are penances, a certain penance that you must undergo, and once you've done that, you feel good about yourself. You literally go away saying, it's okay because a man told me it's okay, and with my own ears I heard him say, if you do this, it's all forgiven. Now, on the other hand, the Jews during the day of Jesus Christ and the days of the Apostle Paul when he wrote this, had a similar priesthood. They didn't have to go to a Catholic priest and to confess and to be told to do so many laps around the rosary. But in order to find expiation, they would sometimes make a vow. It involved sometimes a physical manifestation, such as shaving of the head bald. And when a person would shave his head completely bald, everyone knew that he has taken some oath before God in the temple, before the Levite in the priesthood in the, in the temple, and he has gone and sacrificed about a dozen turtle doves and a couple of bullocks. It's cost him a great deal of money. He's perhaps dipped down in his savings to sacrifice a large number of animals to give a large extra special offering into the temple treasury and has a vow on him that he will neither eat this, that, or the other thing for a certain period of time until he feels expiated. And when they fulfilled that vow, when they sacrificed those animals, they felt forgiven. Now, I would dare say that if I went down here to the Tyler Mall and it was a very busy Saturday, and I simply stood outside a store, and I began making a lot of funny signs with my hands. And I turned around three times, waved a feather, rang a little bell, put it on a table, took some salt, threw it over my shoulder, made some gestures like this, and then like that, and, and so on. Somebody came up, and finally, two or three or five people would stop and kind of watch what I'm doing, because if two or three human beings see some other human being making some funny signs with his hands, or standing on one foot and any other, wiggling his ears, crossing his eyes, just standing there like he's lost in some euphoric exercise of some sort. It's interesting. They think, well, either he's a nut 
And he'd look around fearfully and wonder when somebody with a big net dressed in white is going to come and haul him away with the bells and the red sirens, I mean the red lights and the sirens and so on. Or uh, he's about, he may, he's a magician, he's, uh, he's going to put on a show of some sort, and people would start to gather. Now, the bigger the crowd, the more rapidly the crowd would build, because when you can't see, you get up there and you're in a big hurry to see around the other people. So in a very few moments, this guy, just by making these funny signs with his hands, could have a big crowd of about 30, 40, 50 people. Somebody might get bold enough to say, what in the world are you doing? Oh, me? Well, I was about to buy that brand new reel in there, and I was just practicing my bass casting, thinking about the way that reel would work. You could do something like that and literally gather a crowd because you're making funny signs with your hands. Now, it feels good for people going to a church and not understand a word that is said. As long as there is a ritual, when you walk into the front of the church, you genuflect, you bow on your knee, and you make the sign of a cross from your forehead to your heart to your both sides of your chest and so on. And then you, you dip the little holy water on your fingers and you genuflect again before you get in the row of the pew and then you sit down in the pew. And I've been to a Catholic mass too. Uh, when I was in the Navy, I would go there in San Francisco just to watch it all and so on. It's quite interesting. And the priest would come out with this gold and all of these white vestments and purple and everything and ropes hanging on him. And he will turn around several times and there's a table filled with all sorts of interesting things like chalices and, and pans of little wafers and a bell. There's really a bell there. And there's a big sort of a scepter with holes in it like a salt shaker with water in it that he'll uh, shake around in different directions. And he's wearing a mitre. And they always stand. A lot of them are standing around with big sleeves just draping way down to here with their hands like this. Now, the minute I put my hands like that, you know that that is tremendously holy. You know that that is a holy sign. You heard it down here at, at a bar the other day. There was a drunk sitting there just like this. And another guy next to him thought at first that he was praying, and he kept peeking in there. And uh, the second drunk said, what, what you got in there, fellow? And he said, uh, guess. He said, I don't know, flea? He said, no. Fly? No. Cricket? No. Frog? No. I, I give up. Elephant? He said, what color? You know, but you could actually, you could actually get a crowd, you could get a crowd by simply standing around and, and making funny signs like that, looking up to heaven and mumbling as long as you've got your hands forming a steeple and people will think that that is holy. Now, ancient Israel as a nation, and I won't go back to read all of this in 1 Samuel 8 and verse 7, 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20, decided they were very tired of having men like Samuel, Samuel's sons had gotten out of line, there were a lot of abuses, and Samuel was one of the line of judges. Now Israel at that time was governed as a theocracy directly under God by a human judge, but a judge was at no time a confessor. No Israelite had to go before the judge to have expiation of sins, there was the Levitical priesthood that was in place, and the burnt offerings and all of that. But remember that God said originally when he brought them out of Egypt, he said nothing at all about sacrifices. Those were added as a result of transgressions. It was something that was added later on. But a judge was responsible for verbal interpretations of what are called statutes, in exactly the same way as a judge right down here in Tyler at the courthouse is responsible for investigating what is called case law, all of the decisions of judges that have gone before him in various cases that have come up involving whatever that is uh, at suit or that is under litigation. So there is the law, the Ten Commandments, like in our Constitution. And then the statutes to read of in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Written laws having to do with animals, with inheritance, with landmarks, with how to conduct yourself toward your neighbor, 
laws that even had to do with servants, laws of the uh, release of indebtedness at the end of every seven years, dozens of laws. It obviously could not cover every nuance of human behavior, so a human judge was set in place who could hear various arguments within the confines of law and render a decision called judgments. So the Bible speaks of laws, statutes, and judgments. Well, Israel decided that they were tired of this and they wanted to be like the other nations, as it says in 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20, that we want to be like the nations to have a king to go before us and we want to be just like other countries and to have a great exalted king with a crown, with a royal carriage and a retinue of palace guards and an army, and we want to have all the splendor of a royal house and a royal family, and it's going to be exciting to look to a king. So Samuel was told by God in a dream, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Actually, just like ancient Israel of long ago, many Christians are desperately tired of a minister who really, in effect, is like a judge, who is a, an example, a helper, a teacher, a preacher, but who is not at any time a go-between between you and God, nor a father confessor. And people are willing to do almost anything to get that feeling of the absolution of responsibility, of the expiation of guilt, especially if it has to do with the attachment to a human priest to whom they can look. It's very comforting to have another human being tell you you're all right with God if you can know that that man is all right with God. Well, let's go to the book of Hebrews and look at it in the context that it appropriately belongs, the context of a Levitical priesthood with a temple still standing of the Jews who were accustomed to the eighth-day circumcision of their children to burnt offerings and sacrifices. The Apostle Paul is arguing throughout this book, which is like a little Bible in the midst of a Bible, about the efficacy of the priesthood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in heaven above and the inefficacy, the absolute worthlessness of a visible, earthly, physical priesthood. He says, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at sundry times and in different ways and manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So he introduces immediately right at the heart of the argument the Jews' concept of nationality, of their own pride, of history, of their fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of them, but it dated all the way back to Enoch and even to those before the flood. Happened these last times spoken unto us by his son. Actually, the Ivan Pan and Greek numerics and all the others show that in the original it is a son, H-I-S, his, H-I-S, is italicized, showing that the translators assumed that that belonged there, but that is another attempt to limit the number of the members of the family of God, it should read technically, has in these last days spoken unto us by a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom or through whom also he made the worlds, Greek word means ages, because there's only one world, but he's speaking of the universe, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, the Greek word is K-A-R-A-K-T-E-R, which means stamped impress, or the exact counterpart, the exact replica of God the Father. As Christ said, if you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. But no person, as we know, the Bible says, has ever seen God the Father at any time. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, 
sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made or having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, there's a great deal of rich understanding in those first few verses. It goes way back to the very beginning of creation. And as it explains in the first chapter of John, it explains to us that the one who became Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the one who is the God of the Old Testament, who created the universe, and who was there at the time of the Exodus, and who dealt with Abraham personally, and who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own hand. Most all of the mainstream fundamentalist Protestant organizations conceive of the God of the Old Testament as being the Father God, and the one of the New Testament as being Jesus Christ, who came along to do away with the harsh law of the Father. They don't understand that the Bible very clearly says that the member of the Godhead or the God family, which is a duality of persons, who is the Logos, or the spokesman, who did the commanding, let there be light, let the dry land appear, and so on, is the very individual who created Adam and Eve, and then who died for his own creation, and whose life is worth more than all the rest of humanity put together. For unto which of the angels did he say at any time, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. So immediately he is showing, first of all, that Jesus Christ is of a stature, the resurrected Christ, higher than a spirit angelic being. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, the Jews venerated but did not worship Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Today, they literally worship the idea of the Mosaic code, they worship at the tomb of David, and I've been there and seen them, if that is the tomb of David, at least they think it is, in Jerusalem, and they line up just exactly the same type of a scene with a slightly different setting as Catholics in the great basilica of St. Peter's in Rome. They literally weep, people by the dozens line up with the, is it Yarmulka they call it, anyway, the little skull cap on, and the women go in there and they begin to wail and weep and they're bowing and nodding and just crying real tears to this day. It's going on probably right now, except it's probably night over there now. But in Israel, every single day, as pilgrims from all over the land and all over other countries come to Jerusalem and go to the temple, uh, the, it's the site of the ancient temple that's not standing anymore, but where the tomb of David is, and weep and cry and touch it with their hands and pray at the tomb of David. I've since come to understand why it says that God did not allow Moses' body to be found, or Moses' body would be worshipped and venerated in very much the same way as the statue of St. Peter supposedly is in the Vatican, where the foot has nearly been kissed completely off of it, and it's solid bronze, and the foot is only about half of it there. You can't even see the toes anymore from the hundreds and hundreds of years of thousands of people every single day putting their lips and slobbering all over this bronze foot of a lifeless statue in St. Peter's, and I've been there and seen it. And I mean, the foot is wet. And I mean, lip after lip after lip, hundreds of them from all over the place, are slobbering over the foot of this statue until they've worn it out over the hundreds of years. Now, I guess it feels good. I've been to Mexico City, and I've told you before, I've seen these women weeping and on their hands and knees, literally on their knees, crawling. And there is one area down a big four-lane kind of a double highway where there's a, a cobblestone center to it that leads toward the Basilica of the Virgin of Guadalupe. And these women who maybe have a sick child or whatever are dragging themselves along on their hands and knees 
and just walking on their knees until literally they are leaving a trail of blood until their knees are lacerated, weeping before this altar and approaching this virgin, the picture of this virgin of Guadalupe that is a symbol of the so-called, not Mary really, but a different woman who apparently appeared to the Mexicans, at least so they say. And I guess it feels good to people to be able to do that, to literally punish yourself, as in Ashura, over among the Muslims in Iran and other nations where they slash themselves with whips and beat themselves bloody raw on the back in expiation for sin. And during the days of the Apostle Paul, it was very, very easy for these Judaizing ministers, who basically were Jews, many of them had come out of the Pharisaical religion, who had become converted, but whose past or background or tradition was so absolutely rooted in the laws of Moses and then especially in the Talmud, which is a lot of added do's and don'ts that is not really the religion of Moses, but a perverted religion of the Jews during the day of Christ. And they would urge these Gentiles, who of course worship pagan idols and believe in sacrifices of animals, especially things strangled and eating it with the blood and temple prostitution and the whole bit, and so they would actually jump into the ritual of circumcision with alacrity. It sounded like a very logical thing to do to them. And, of course, these teachers were urging it upon them. And the Apostle Paul was trying to say, that is not necessary. We have a heavenly high priest. He goes on to say, in verse 7, of the angels he saith, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers, meaning angels too, by the way, a flame of fire. But under the sun he saith, thy throne, O God, so the sun is referred to as God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, which means lawlessness. Therefore God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Now notice the absolute inescapable conclusion at verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, speaking of Christ, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. No church believes that, apparently, but the true churches of God today. The great mainstream fundamentalist churches, the Baptists, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, all of them, do not believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the God of the Old Testament, and yet the Bible says it over and over again. They shall perish, but you remain. They all shall wax old as doth the garment, and as a vesture shall you fold them up, and they shall be chained, but you are the same, and your years shall not fail." But to which of the angels did he say at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are not they, showing that angelic spirits are a very large notch less than Christ, ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now, I'm going to skip along and not read every bit of it, but to show basically that part that has to do with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? In the sermonette you heard about the neglect of a particular set of muscles, your knees or your biceps, or in one sense of the word, you might say, your prayer life or your spiritual life and letting it atrophy through neglect. And that is precisely what many people have done and are doing. It's not that difficult to stay away from Sabbath services just once and then sometimes just once or twice in every two or three months. 
And then eventually it's easier to stay away a couple of Sabbaths in a row. Until eventually it's easy to stay away about three times out of four. It's difficult to stay away from the annual holy days. But I've seen people come and gradually seen people come here for the Passover who never darkened the door on the weekly Sabbath. And as the years have gone by, now about eight years later, some of those who were faithfully here the first three, four, five years, or over at Cedars of Lebanon, wherever, for the Passover only once a year, never darken the door again. It takes time, this business of neglect. It would take perhaps a month for my house, my yard, to just look so absolutely bad that it would be recover unrecoverable, and you simply have to start over from scratch if it weren't mowed and weeded and carefully tended and so on. You could just let it grow to weeds and rack and ruin. It would take only very few years to let your house deteriorate inside and out, just through neglect. And of course, people don't realize that you can neglect salvation, and that you, just through weariness, and just growing weary with well-doing, and beginning to think that God is picking on you, or you're the person who is behind the door when all the good things are handed out, and you have a great uh, difficulty that is much greater than that which anybody else has suffered, including Peter who was crucified upside down, or Paul who fought animals at Ephesus, or Christ who was crucified and spit upon and had a crown of thorns jammed upon him and a spear thrust into his side. But sometimes we think that physical things, economic things involving our love life, things involving other friends and people, are actually greater trials, and we begin to become a little angry at God and feeling like we're being picked on. And there are greater trials, and so therefore we have an excuse to kind of let down and just back off and forget it and neglect salvation. Well, he goes on saying, God bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and different kinds of miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For under the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place, and it's David in the psalm, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? Now this is speaking of you and of me. It is speaking of human life, and not one church on the face of the earth understands what human beings are even doing on this earth except the true church of God. And hopefully that knowledge is not lost among those of the parent organization. You made him a little lower than the angels. And that's quite a statement. You crowned him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of your hand. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And look what man has done, what man has conquered in that sense of the word. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for that in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. God has intended that all things, meaning the universe itself and the solar system, are put in subjection under the human race, but not quite yet. I got a letter the other day from a person who uh, I don't think knew anything at all about what we have preached for many years about the very purpose and the plan of God and what is the destiny of the human race. But he and his wife, in just studying the Bible, and then he told me about a discussion he had with his son, and he is really not that knowledgeable about the Bible began to look out into the universe and the solar system and just began to muse about whether or not all of that was, was created as just a vast junkyard out in space, a wasteland that has no future value and is never going to be used. And in his own mind, just thinking and reasoning about the plan of God and the greatness of it and what kind of a stature humankind is to achieve 
at the resurrection and after the second coming of Christ, he began to realize why the creation process is going to be endless. It will never end. That even as man has this tremendous insatiable curiosity for which we're willing to spend a trillion dollars and more and put our great-great-grandchildren in debt to have space programs that cost hundreds of billions of dollars to build these great vehicles to put men in orbit and actually probe out into the outer reaches of our own solar system and out into the universe to try to find out how was it made, where did it come from, what are the rocks like, uh, what happens up there, uh, what gases are present, uh, would there be the conditions extant that would be conducive to life on Venus or some other planet somewhere. And because of the insatiable curiosity, even in that sense a non-theological curiosity, an evolutionary curiosity about the potential of man's roots being in outer space and of life sort of self-generating on this earth, man seeks to find his origins and therefore his ultimate destiny. Well, this family had actually come to believe what the Bible really does show, that creation is an endless process and is going to continue right on out into the future. So we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now the word glory is not feeling all tingly and having goosebumps all over your body. Uh, at a time of a Pentecostal revival. It is not winning the blue ribbon in a track race. It is not a girl with a sheath dress and sequins all over it singing a sexy love song. Isn't that glorious? But when it says, many sons unto glory, let's turn real quickly to 1 John 3 and verse 1 where it tells us a little bit about that. In 1 John 3 and verse 1 it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now that is ridiculous when I look at it from the mundane, human, carnal standpoint of we flesh and blood, sweaty human beings with our foibles and faults, our utter lack of understanding, a brain that we use to about 2% of its capacity, physical bodies that are debilitated and sometimes ridden with disease, and then when I stop to think that the great God who set that sun blazing in this great universe of ours should actually call us his kids, his children, it almost sounds ridiculous. I mean, it's one thing to acknowledge our own children and say that we are the children of our parents, but that God should call us the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now you will have a lot of things in common with neighbors or with relatives that are unconverted. But you will be dumbfounded to find that when you will meet with church brethren, for example, at the Feast of Tabernacles, people can sit down, they can go to dinner, they can go to services, they can be together, they can go on camping trips who are not related but who are members of God's church. And they never run out of things to talk about. And no matter what subject they bring up, there is a compatibility. There is a mutual interest. There is conversation. But you can have your own family members who are unconverted but whom you love dearly. And you can go to visit them or they can come to visit you. And you can go to dinner and you'll be amazed 
after a certain period of time, you find yourself utterly mentally weary. You are exhausted. You have run out of subjects. You don't have anything else to say. Because the limited understanding that is there, even though you love them dearly, and you are doing a kind of a tightrope walk because you're so careful not to offend them, and there are many subjects you can't even discuss, and if you were in a restaurant, for example, and you're ordering and they decide to get the snails or the shrimp, and then you don't, and on and on, there are a lot of danger spots there you can run into. And I've had people tell me that time and again, and I have experienced it from time to time in my life in the past, that sometimes very close friends that I know who are not members of the church, you very, very quickly run out of things to talk about. So when it says, therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not, it means what it says. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. 1 Corinthians 15, 49-52 says, We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, and that we shall be made into a spirit body. He says there is a physical body, and there is a spiritual body. So it says, it does not yet appear what we shall be, we are the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Now, Christ could materialize in this room through the roof, through the wall, or through the floor, or through this stone behind me. You can literally see a being stepping out halfway in and halfway out of the stone, and then he would step down here, and he could start speaking to you. Now, if that had happened to you, if you'd have been one of the disciples after the resurrection of Christ in a big stone room with a big huge door about 20 feet high with a big iron bar on it and a lock in place for fear of being discovered, and he stepped right through the wall and said, Don't be affrighted, it is I. And they all began to shriek and scream and some dropped to their knees and said, Oh, it's a spirit. And he said, No, now come here. A spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see me have. Come here and touch me and see that it's I. Don't be afraid. And they were terrified. They were crawling out of the tables. They were hiding their eyes. Some of them probably were about to faint. And Christ had to assure them that it was him and actually prove it to them. It says that that is the way we are to be in the resurrection. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now back in Hebrews, notice beginning in verse 14. He says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy, and by the way, that word in the Greek is K-R-A-T-U-S, kratos, and I've written a very extensive article on that in the past many years ago. I need to rewrite one. Maybe I can look that up and do that at some point in time. It literally means to counterwork or to thwart, to completely thwart or to counterwork. There's very strong indication in the Bible that the devil is not going to be utterly destroyed, although the question or the argument is really... Uh, non-essential, because it does very clearly state that he is going to be banished from the earth during the millennium, released a short period of time, and then banished again never to reappear. So whether or not he's going to be destroyed is really irre irrelevant to you or to me, and it's certainly not a contention of doctrine. But it seems to indicate he will not be destroyed, but be in the blackness of darkness forever, the very threat that he has held over the human race for these uh, many thousands of years, and one of the greatest lies of Satan the devil, that you are actually alive, that an immortal soul is alive for all eternity, suffering, when in fact that's what's going to happen to him. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Very important scripture. Man is ruled by that fear. Man is literally ruled by the fear of death. 
and religions are built around it and upon it, and people are actually willing to become subject to bondage because they believe that a particular church structure or an individual in a church, such as the Pope or the Roman Catholic Church, can get them into the, in this case, heaven, they think it is, of the kingdom of God. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. So Jesus, as the captain of our salvation, has lived a human physical life exactly as we have, and was tempted, as it says later on at every point, like as we were. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. You know, a lot of people keep diaries. And diaries are embarrassing when they fall into the wrong hands. I don't know how many of you in this room have kept a diary. Many young girls keep diaries. Later on, when they're middle-aged women, they look back at it. And many of them will burn them. I mean, they just think, how could I have, you know, said those things about this guy who was a football player or whatever. But the reason people keep diaries is because they've got to have a, an intensely private source to which they can go to put down thoughts and in which they can confide. A person is really, in a sense, confiding with himself, but a diary becomes almost like a living human being like a dear friend, and they always address the diary, Dear Diary, like it's a person by the name of Diary, you know. And uh, they write, Now yesterday this and that happened, and I felt this way, and oh, I was so humiliated. And they just pour out their innermost thoughts. Now the Roman Catholics believe that you have to pour out your innermost thoughts to a priest. Well, we believe the book of Hebrews, and we believe the whole Bible, and we believe all the scriptures that have to do with the efficacy of the priesthood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we believe that when you go to Christ in as personal, private, and intimate a manner as you would go to your diary. Now, there are things that people would write in a diary that they would never tell their own wife or husband. There are things that people would write in a diary they would never tell their closest friend. And there are people there who will confide in a close friend that wouldn't confide in a member of their own family, and maybe even a spouse. Because people tend to have different levels of life. There's a very intensely personal private level, and then there's the family level, the extended family level, and then the level of friends and associates. But that intensely personal private level is the level with which Almighty God and Jesus Christ want to deal. Because before you can get into the kingdom of God, you have to come to repentance, and Almighty God has to know that you've repented, and he describes repentance as being brokenhearted and trembling at his word, and standing there as if you are blood guilty, having participated in the beating and the crucifixion of Christ, and calling out to God for repentance of your sins and forgiveness of everything that you've ever done that was wrong, and having a new life like driven snow, a clean slate, a fresh start, a new beginning, a complete new you, a new lease on life, as a result of forgiveness of sins, and that forgiveness comes by your confession of your sins to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In 1 John, the first chapter, I want to conclude right quickly. The seventh through the ninth chapters of the book of Hebrews, by the way, are those that have to do more with the priesthood than the portion that I read. I just came to that one part to conclude with, but let's go to 1 John, the first chapter. John is writing to Christians, and he says this, verse 8, if we, now he is writing to the church, he's writing to Christians, 
if we who are Christians, we who are converted, who have been baptized, say that we have no sin, we are kidding ourselves. We're lying to ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I like the bumper sticker that says that, how does it go, that we're not perfect, just forgiven? It says Christians, I think, aren't perfect, just forgiven. Good, good, good slogan, although I don't think it belongs on a bumper sticker. I think it's just something for people to understand. That we are not perfect, but we are forgiven, and we remain in a forgiven state. And we can be continually forgiven when we do this. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, to whom? To Christ. To Almighty God in heaven above. Not to each other, unless you have offended someone so deeply you need to uh, profess that you are sorry and to confess that you have done something wrong to him. If you sin deliberately against someone, then you need to go to that person. But otherwise you confess to God. If we confess our sins, he, not the minister, not the priest, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we... John includes himself and the laity, have an advocate. And that advocate is not in an office with paneling and a big desk in Pasadena, California. He is not standing on his balcony overlooking the Vatican in Rome. He is not in some church office in Salt Lake City. He is not a leader of a human physical church. That paraclete, that go-between, that advocate is Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. I think the question I ask is very, very valid. It says very clearly in the writings of John that love covers a multitude of sins, and that when we confess our sins, God is eager and is anxious to forgive us. Well, I'm thankful to God that the ministry of the church is a ministry of teachers, a ministry of preachers, a ministry of counselors, hopefully of guides, and hopefully of those who can set a good example. We are not father confessors, and we are not priests. We do not know what are your difficulties. We don't want to know. It is none of our business. The private difficulties you may have for which you need absolution and a feeling of guiltlessness are those you take to Jesus Christ of Nazareth and to God the Father in the deep, intimate, personal, private moments of your life, in your closet, your bathroom, uh, your clothes closet down there among the shoes and a dirty clothes hamper, wherever you go, in your bedroom or wherever you are, and you pouring out your heart in your innermost groanings and sometimes feelings, moods, and thoughts that cannot even be uttered, as it says in Romans the 8th chapter, in the Spirit, praying with God, confess and profess to Him your deepest feelings. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is my high priest and that there's no human being on this earth I've got to crawl to.